Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning and to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are about 105 churches in the Crossroads District. You think you should know the exact number, Mark? Well, I should, except we keep starting new churches. And uh, every once in a while, I get a phone call that something sprung up over here or God's doing something over there. On Friday night, I was in one of our newest mission works over in the Newcastle prison. And I'll maybe tell you more about that before the day is over. But on behalf of all your brothers and sisters in Christ in those churches across our district, from the south side of Indianapolis to the sandy shores of Lake Michigan from the Ohio border over to Illinois. Uh, that's the Crossroads District, and it is a delight to serve this team. About 13,000 people strong will be in one of those communities of fellowship worship this morning, and uh, it's it's just always a delight. And this morning to be here with you, to get to worship with you, and on this special occasion, what a wonderful uh, tribute. And thank you, Doctor, for your, your generous gift to the body of Christ. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. It's a passage that if you've been around the church any length of time, I will guess that you've seen it once or twice. But I want to turn to you uh, and speak about the almost perfect church. Now, I don't know about some of you. Uh, you may be like me. You were raised around the church. Uh, my dad was uh, an evangelist. On Thursday night, he preached, and my mother played the piano for the service. On Friday night, he preached, and my mother gave birth. Because back in those days, there was nothing for the dad to do at the hospital. They just told you, go away and stay busy. So he said, why wouldn't I preach? <laughs> so he went and preached on Friday night. I don't know if I was in church that Sunday, but I know I was by the next Sunday. And by the time I was seven years old, I'd heard over a thousand sermons. I did the math. over th You thought I would have turned out a little better than that, Dr. John. After all that, you would have thought I would have turned out better. But I grew up around the church, and for me, it was a wonderful place. I don't know what your experience has been in other situations, but for me, it was one of those warm, bright places that I looked forward to. I loved to sing. I loved the music. I loved the fellowship. I loved to learn, and it was just a great place for me. But I do remember, as I became a teenager, and there's a few of those in the room, as I got a little older, I started to listen, and every once in a while, I'd hear something or I'd see something in the church that disappointed me. I'd see something, a behavior, maybe on Friday or Saturday in the community, and that sure didn't seem consistent with what the person had talked about on Sunday. I thought, well, there's a gap there. Or maybe in the hallway of the church, I'd hear somebody talking about somebody else in the church. And I've got to be honest, as a teenager, that broke my heart. That, that was troubling to me. I, I was trying to figure this thing out because I thought, the church, the church is supposed to be perfect. I mean, if there's any place in the world that should be perfect, shouldn't it be the church? So I decided it must just be my church that was messed up. So I thought when I go off to college, I'm going to find the perfect church. So off I went. I mean, I was free, you know, so off I went. I visited everything. I thought, well, the Catholics have been around for a while. They must have it figured out, so I'm going to try that. So I went over there and worshiped, found out they had a few problems. Then I thought, well, my friends who go to the charismatic churches, they seem really, really excited about their churches, so I'll go over there. When I found out, well, they, they had a few problems too. I, I went to my Calvinist friends. They, I figured they must have it all surely figured out. They were predestined to get it right, so I went over to visit them, found out they, they were messed up too. You know, I felt a little bit like Groucho Marx, because everywhere I went, there I was, and Groucho Marx said, I'd never join any club that would have me as a member. Well, I, kind of, I started to feel that way about the church. I, I don't know. If, if you find the perfect church, don't ruin it by joining it. I, I, I heard the story... I heard the story about the, the uh, rescue ship. It, it came to this deserted island, and when they arrived on the beach, they saw this one gentleman and three huts. And they said to him, help us understand, what are the three huts? Well, he said, the first hut, that's the hut I live in. Well, of course, they said, that makes sense. But what's the second hut? 
Oh, he said, the second hut, that's the church I go to. They said, well, what's the third hut? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> he couldn't find the perfect church either. You know, there, there you go. And, and I will remember reading Acts chapter 2, and I read these words that we're going to look at together this morning. And I thought, there's the perfect church. Let's take a look at it, shall we? Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. After the day of Pentecost, when Peter's preached, more than 3,000 added to their number. Verse 42, reading from the NIV, says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I said, there it is. I found it. There's the perfect church. Acts chapter 2. Except I made the mistake of continuing to read. <laughs> and I got to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, you meet a wonderful couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. They said, we want to help out with the building project, so what we're going to do is we're going to sell some property, and we're going to get this much money. We're sure we can get this much money for it. When we do, we're going to give the whole amount to the church. So they put the property on the market, and it surprised them. It sold for more than they'd anticipated, but they got to talking over the kitchen table. You know, we really said that number, and I think if we just give that number, no one in the church will be any the wiser, and we'll still look like very generous people. So they came to church, and they lied. Can you imagine? They lied. First the husband, then the wife. They lied, and they died. My, talk about church discipline. Wow. <laughs> they took that to a whole nother level. Yeah, but here they are lying in the church by Acts chapter 5. Then you get to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you find ethnic division in the church. Ethnic division. They'd been caring for the widows, which is a great ministry. They said, let's take food around. Let's take bread and make sure that every widow gets fed. That's like wonderful, great plan. Let's go for it. And so they started out doing that. And then the people who were from Jerusalem, who had a Hebraic accent to the way they spoke their language, when they encountered Hebrew speaking or their background, same similar background, they gave them the bread first. And then they went to the widows who had more of a Greek accent. They, they were from out of town. And they took whatever was left over, if there was any left over, and gave it to them. Can you imagine churches separated by ethnic or racial division? Yet in America today, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour of the week. Ethnic division in this church. You think, wait a second, I thought this church was perfect. And then I, probably the most disturbing thing of all is when you get to Acts chapter 8, you just continue to read along, and you find out that the church is still in Jerusalem. You said, what's the problem with that? Well, if you read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, instead of 8, verse 1, flip it back to 8, 8th verse of chapter 1, you'll hear Jesus say, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem. And some of you know that's wrong, Mark. That's not what it says at all. It says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. 
I want you to take this message and go, 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 go. And they'd received the message and stayed, 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 stayed right in Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8 when persecution breaks out. I wonder why it is that the church under persecution, even in our generation, tends to be the most anointed, the most powerful church. Whether it's the churches that are springing up in Iran, many of them led by women, church planters and pastors. Or in China, where it's against the law, where church buildings have been bulldozed, and yet 16-year-old girls are planting churches. Last year they reported on a 16-year-old girl who planted 20 house churches in 12 months. Will it take persecution? I hope not. Maybe, maybe we can learn how to be the almost perfect church. Maybe we can get some clues here that help us. Now, I'm glad I've got some doctors in the house because I'm going to say this wrong. So help me out, Dr. John, if I get too far off here. In high school, I don't remember a lot about my chemistry or the sciences. But I did remember this one, uh, uh, one word, uh, and let's see if I can say it right, deoxy ribonucleic acid. Is that close, guys? All right. I, oh, I got some high school students. Give me a thumbs up. All right. Not much help from the doctors, but the high school students are helping me out. That's, that's good. DNA. DNA. I remember being fascinated as they were exploring the, the wonders of creation, how God had designed this basic building block of life, that the DNA describes why I have such a beautiful head of hair. Right, it had nothing to do with not, you know, drinking too much coffee or not eating my Wheaties. It had everything to do with DNA. I had a heart attack back in October. I went in and they, say, they did a wonderful job. I'm so grateful for the care. But as they looked at me and got my medical history, they said, oh, you just can't outrun your genes. <laughs> I had family history, family history. Down it went. And they said, you're, you're, you know, I, I, had, I had done a 3.2 that morning. I had done a 5K that morning. And still had a heart attack driving to Indianapolis. They said, you know what? You can run, but you cannot run your genes. It's going to track you down. So there you go. This is the DNA of the church. What I see here is the basic building blocks at any church, regardless of whether it's a church newly planted, like our church over in Union City. We have a church there that just is getting started. They meet in a living room. Last two weeks ago, they had 42 people in a living room and have baptized three new believers in the last couple of weeks. Isn't that exciting? So whether it's that church or if you go down to College Wesleyan Church with the beautiful stained glass like you have and choir and someone playing the cello, oh, you'd like that. They're playing the strings and they're doing all this. It's wonderful. But it doesn't matter whether you're in a cathedral or under a tree. I've been in a ba under a banyan tree in Mozambique with 250 Wesleyans loving Jesus. I, I was in Bangladesh just last year and on a porch. The porch of the house wasn't much bigger than this platform. And 35 precious believers gathered on that porch while it rained outside, while a soldier sat there with a gun to make sure that I didn't get taken away because it was in Muslim territory. But those precious believers worshiping Jesus or this wonderful congregation called Brown's Chapel, it doesn't matter where you are, what size you are, what kind of structure you worship in. Every church of Jesus Christ has this potential because of this DNA, has kingdom potential. Let's look at it again, shall we? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, if I was going to use DNA as the hook, all right, let's use D as the divine truth. What do you suppose the apostles were teaching? The apostles, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Well, I know there's some questions I would have liked to ask the apostles. Like, what does Daniel chapter 7 mean? Or explain Revelation to me. There's a lot of things I would like to know, curious things. But you know the thing you'd ask first? If John, the beloved disciple, walked through the door this morning, what would you want to know? I would say, tell me more, more about Jesus. John, tell me about that day when he fed 5,000. John, tell me about that day when he raised the widow's son. John, tell me about that day when he calmed the storm and walked on the way. John, tell me more, more, more about Jesus. When I read this idea that they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, I just am I'm convicted about the fact that we must always preach Jesus. I, I was one day in a, in a church and I saw they had a little scripture verse on a plaque. And it was taken from the words of the Gentiles, the Greeks who came to the disciple and said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. If there's nothing else people see, not your beautiful building, not the warm, friendly faces, but when people leave here, do they walk away saying, we learned about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More. It's all about Jesus. And if we can keep that focus, the divine truth, the teaching of who Jesus is. I love what Wesley said. He said, I'm a, a man of one book. Now, he read extensively, but he said, give me this book. I want to know more, more about Jesus. Pastor, I charge you, preach Jesus. Lift him high in your worship. Declare Jesus, who he is. That's the best gift we have to offer the world. Your fellowship is wonderful. Your facilities are outstanding, but you've got nothing that matters for eternity but to preach Jesus to lift him high, to exalt him as our risen Savior and our soon coming King. They preached Jesus. We are people of the book, but Jesus is God's best and final word to us. So the D is devoted to the truth, the divine truth of Jesus. The, the N, when I look at this, I read these passages and I see this kind of relationship that's going on. They're nurturing relationships. They're relationships of care and concern for one another. Thank you this morning for leading us in prayer for the needs of the church. Thanks for sharing those common concerns. It says here that they devote themselves not just to teaching, but also to the fellowship. And it explains it. It goes into some detail. It says, for example, in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. I remember when I was younger, that there were people who read this verse and said, see, the Christians were communists. <laughs> I said, well, if you keep reading, the context explains that they weren't. It says they sold property. They didn't confiscate it. So there's quite a difference, isn't there? I think some of you know the difference. They gave, though, generously. There's this heart of, of commonality that they want to care for each other. They gave to anyone who had need. Isn't that beautiful? And every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Those were large gatherings. And they also met in their homes, small groups. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I love this picture of nurturing relationships. Please don't confine your relationships to one hour on Sunday morning. I saw, I, I, I don't know if any of you have sinned and are on Facebook. <laughs> Apparently a few of us are guilty, including me. And I did see one of these, I think they call them memes. Did I get that right? Help me, teenagers. Come on, give me a little help. Memes. And it was a picture, and it said, you're always inviting me to your church, but you've never invited me over for supper. Whoa. I was convicted by that. You're always inviting me to your church, but you're never inviting. And these people, they invited them over for supper. They said, come on in, experience this community, this fellowship. Come to our home, spend time with us, hang out with us. And I thought about the picture of the church. 
Imagine if I had a glass beaker. I may have to get one of these. A glass beaker, like this big, a jar, and in it, I had marbles. And I took those marbles and I shook them up. I shook it, turned it up, wiggled it around, shook it again a little bit more, and then I turned it over. What would happen to those marbles when I took the top off? They'd just go everywhere, wouldn't they? They'd just roll. They'd be a real nuisance. <laughs> They'd be dangerous. They'd be everywhere. What if instead of marbles, I had filled that jar with grapes? And I shook it up. And I flipped it over and I shook it up some more. When I opened it up and poured it out, what would I receive? The juice or the wine. Because they... they Taken that the outside shell had been broken down and that the substance that was there, that this wonderful life-giving substance had, had meshed itself together and produced this fruit, this beautiful substance that I could receive. I thought, man, I've been in churches where it feels like a glass jar full of marbles. They come in on Sunday morning and they bump into each other, right? <laughs> Fist bumps, you know, high fives, shake hands. And then as soon as the service is over, they scatter and you never see each other again until, oh, next Sunday, here we are again. And then I've been in churches where they really did. They cared for it. They prayed for it. They met in small groups and homes. They shared meals with each other. They connected with each other through the week. They discipled one another. They prayed for it. They worked together. They served together in their community. And I saw such a difference. There was life. There's no life in marbles. But there's life and the fruit of the vine. And God's calling to us is nurturing relationships. Over 50 times in the New Testament, there are commands for us to minister to one another, love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. Those are ministries that we have. Thank God for your pastor. I'm grateful. You've got a wonderful pastor. But the ministry is not confined to somebody who took a degree at seminary. It's ours. We are all called to this ministry of caring for one another. And most of all, love. Look, you may not be able to play the piano like that or sing. Or, or teach a Sunday school lesson, but everybody can love. Everybody gets to play in this game. We all, I'll never get a call up from the Pacers. It's not going to happen. I don't even think Jim Ursay has my number. I don't think I'm going to play for the Colts either one. But you know what? The great thing in the body of Christ is we all get to play. We all have spiritual gifts. We all have opportunities to bless and encourage one another and what a difference it makes. Oh, I know sometimes it's... Uh, a little challenging to be in the church. My dad used to poke, uh, uh, quote this poem. Let's see if I can get it right. To live above in saints in love, oh, that will be such glory. But to live below with the saints I know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> you know what? You're messed up. I'm messed up. We're all messed up. But thank God for grace. And we can give grace to one another. We can love one another. We can encourage one another. We can send a note. We can send a text. We can say, I'm praying for you today, my brother, my sister. Nurturing relationships. It's the body of Christ being the people of God. So there's devoted to the truth, the divine truth of Jesus. There's nurturing relationships, the end. And then the A, notice what it says. I love this verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And there's this sense of apostolic mission. And we hear the word apostolic or apostle, and sometimes we put that term way up on a shelf. But that word simply meant someone who's sent on a mission. Anybody ever send their kids to the grocery store with fear and trepidation when they're 16 and hoping they'll come back and it's not snowing? Yeah, you're like all the, but that's someone who's sent on a mission. 
Maybe God feels that same way as that parent of the teenager when he looks at us. But we've been sent on a mission. We've been called to carry his image and to bear the word of God into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, on mission with God. We don't exist for itself. Someone said the church is the only membership organization in the world that does not exist for the benefit of its members. You used to have this credit card ad said, this particular card, membership has its benefits. I don't know if you remember that. I'm, I'm really old here. Membership has its benefits. Well, when you get your church membership, the card should say, membership has its opportunities. It has its opportunities to serve, to encourage, to bless one another, to use your spiritual gifts, and to take that on mission into the world. I'm going to land this plane on time, Pastor. It's 11.30. So here's the final thought. Everyone in this room is one of two kinds of people. You either are a missionary or you need one. Everyone in this room is either a missionary or you need one. And I'm just guessing that most folks here already know Jesus. Thank the Lord. If you're not here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, can I just thank you for being here, for exploring faith? Can I say you're in a wonderful place, a loving fellowship of people who love to help you wrestle through to those answers and to meet Jesus in a beautiful, life-transforming way. You're in a great place for that. So if you're not here as a Christian, please know you are so welcome here. We're glad you're here. But if you are here as a Christian, can I tell you, this is not the playing field. This is not the game. This is the locker room. This is the huddle. And no championship is ever won in the locker room. You got to get out there and you got to get on the court and you got to play. And you come together on Sunday. May God bless the word that's preached here, the worship that you share, the way you encourage each other. But it's all about getting out of the door of the locker room into a world of hurting, broken people. Do you know there's three million people in the state of Indiana with no religious affiliation? I, I could not believe that was true when I read the data. I said, how can that be possible with all those Wesleyans? <laughs> how could that be true? They've even got Bill Gaither in Indiana. How could it be true? Everybody must be a Christian here. But three million people who are not Buddhist, they're not Hindu, they're not Muslim, no religious affiliation, and they're not Christian. Used to be that the first thought people had on Sunday morning when they woke up is, I'm either going to go my church or I'm going to go find a church. People don't think that anymore. It's not about the church being a place people come to. The call of God today is for the church to be a people who go to, who go to the world, who go to your home, who go to your neighborhood, you go to your office and you say, hey, I'm just trying to get this figured out, but I'm a missionary and I want to bring God's grace to you. I, you, you said, Mark, I don't know you. You only show up once every 18 months or so. So let me, this is the crowd participation moment as the piano player comes and the get ready pastor. This is crowd participation. I want you to find somebody and look them right in the eyeballs. So maybe it's somebody you really like. Can you do that? Find some, look them in the eyeballs. I'm going to give you a little clue, a little test here. I'm going to give you a count to three in a few moments. When I give you a count to three, I want you to say with enthusiasm, good morning, missionary. Are you ready? One, two, three. All right, let's let's find somebody. That was pretty good first time. Let's find somebody else. Turn to find someone else's eyeballs. You ready? On the count of three, with enthusiasm. One, two, three. Good morning, missionary. I don't know what it's going to take. Maybe we could put a card in our mirror in the morning when you're combing your hair like I do. Or you could put it in the dashboard of your car. Or maybe it's on the cover of your daytime. Or maybe it's a memo that pops up in your calendar on your phone every morning. 
But what would it feel like tomorrow morning when you get up if you just heard those words? Good morning, missionary. Don't forget the reason. Don't forget the purpose that you're still here. There's people who need Jesus. If they die, they'll split hell wide open. There is a hell that's real, but there's a heaven that calls and God wants us to spend eternity with him. And this wonderful church, Brown's Chapel Church, you've been called on mission with God. You are sent to what he calls you to do. Pastor, I'll turn it to you. Would you come and lead us?